Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast that explores Scottish heritage and culture. I'm Annie, your enchanted archivist. And I'm Jenny, your oracle of great esteem and average accuracy. And I predict in this episode that we are going to be talking about the magical side of the great mountain Shehalian, all its folklore and all its legends. The only episode more wondrous than this is the previous one about the magic of nature and science. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Go back and listen now for a perfectly rock-filled summary of Shehalian. But we both know Shehalian is so much more than a big rock. And I'm delighted that you, dearest listeners, have joined us again on this trek up Shehalian. Because these are stories that we've wanted to share with you for a really long time. And I keep delaying this episode because I just wanted us to do it right. Yeah, no, this was meant to be our very, very first ever Stories of Scotland episode. So it's only taken two and a half years to get here. (laughs) (laughs) We've taken a meandering path up here, but we're here now and I'm thrilled. And this episode is going deep into folklore found in local newspapers, which is one of my favourite things in the world. So I thought a brilliant way to begin our magical exploration of Shehalian would be with this extract from the Dundee Courier in winter 1926. Jenny, can you be a Dundonian reporter for me? Of course, Annie. The snow-capped peak of Shehalian stands out sharply against the skyline. Our fairy hill wears different aspects. Shehalian has drawn around it many legends. People of an older generation believed it haunted, not only by gentle fairies, but by wilder, fiercer creatures of less peaceful character. A far-reaching cave led right through its heart, and there's a legend here of a musician who was brave of heart and wanted to prove the safety of Shehalian's caves. Thus, he proudly took his highland bagpipes and boldly played them as he marched into the dark depths of the Shehalian cave. The bellows of the pipes slowly grew fainter and fainter to anyone listening outside. And the piper has never been seen again, never returning from the cave of Shehalian. He is said to have found a home with the fairies. On Shehalian's windswept crests the fairies dwelt, and once at least the angels of God descended upon it. The young people of Granach gathered there on May morning at dawn, and apart from the mystic satisfaction they felt after the climb, they must have enjoyed the glorious view. The top is often shawled in wreaths of cloud, but at most times, it stands clean-cut and stern. So I love the story of the piper within Shehalian, because the wind gushing round the mountain creates its own great songs, and I wonder if just a few of them could sound like the notes of a bagpipe being played deep within a cave. Also, within this one article, there are so many stories that we could unpick. But I think a really interesting place to begin is the mentioning of the May Day celebrations on Shehalian. Wait, you think 
you think the Mayday celebrations are more interesting than the literal angels of God landing on top of the mountain? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe the angels came for the Mayday celebrations, Jenny. You never know. Uh, Yeah, no, you are right. The angels do love a good bank holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny! Well, I thought we could start with the May Day celebrations because we found a marvellous oral history from the School of Scottish Studies, recorded by Dr Betsy Marlene Ross with an unknown Perthshire local in 1978. Uh, Well, the young people, so they tell me, uh, this is before my time, but but, uh, the the young people used to, to gather and they set off up, up the hill to to the back of Shehalian and there was a wishing well there and they used to put coins in there and uh, uh, wish for luck and that sort of thing. And they did this on May Day? They did this all on May Day, yes, the first of May. Uh, well, uh, on Halloween night and before that of course we had to, to gather all the sticks and, and old bracken and things and and have something to make a blaze and it was usually up on the hillside and uh, we all used to gather round and uh, set, set fire to the thing and it was a grand spectacle and we showed for miles around and then we, we went uh, home and we would be uh, dugging for apples and, and uh, cracking hazelnuts and things like that yes well, we just went to the different houses in the village. We went around all the houses in the village and uh, we had uh, four people. They usually get danced to Highland Reel and I played the Millennium. And of course, we, we always got something. Uh, they give us something for... Well, I've heard that, that they used to do that. There were so many people, you see, that, uh, sheep shearers are very scarce today, but at that time there would be 20, maybe 20 or 30, nearer 30, gathering at a shearing. And when the, the sheep had been shorn, they would uh, start uh, competing among themselves, throwing the hammer and putting the stone and things like that. But that's all a thing of the past. Goodness me. You got it done. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that was so fantastic, Annie. I really love bringing these original voices into the podcast. And what I find really interesting about this is that May Day aligns with the ancient Gaelic festival of Beltane. And these are seen as liminal times, when the jangly beaded curtain betwixt our world and the supernatural realm becomes very thin indeed. Hang on a minute, Jenny. How does a beaded curtain become thin? Oh, uh, improper care of a beaded curtain will lead to tangling and knotting, leaving many gaps indeed for all sorts of supernatural beings to slip through. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no time for tangling like Beltane. These festivals are when ancient powers awaken, when folks are most likely to benefit from the healing powers of a magic well, or when new parents must be very cautious that their babies aren't stolen by the fairies. Well, let's peek past this knotted curtain and see what Shehalian has to offer. 
The curtain has seen better days, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Jenny. The seventies. <laughs> Where it should have stayed. <laughs> it got stuck in the middle of Shalyan. <laughs> it's there eternally. <laughs> So, before we go into some of the more surreal mythology, let's have a look at a marvellous story about King Robert the Bruce, um, which I first read about in the Dundee Courier of 1879, but goes way back to the 14th century. It took the guy a really long time to write that article as well. It's not just us. (laughs) (laughs) King Robert the Bruce is, of course, the famous warrior king of Scots who led Scotland during the First War of Independence in the early 1300s. So we're learning about Robert's movements after the Battle of Methven, and this was a bit of a low point for Robert the Bruce. You see, Edward I of England was angry at Robert the Bruce being coronated as King of Scotland. So... Edward of England decided to retaliate by sending a May de Valance to seize control of Scotland. De Valance set up his forces in Perth, which is close to Shehalion. Now, Robert the Bruce knew that he was going to inevitably have to battle a May de Valance. So Robert the Bruce marched his soldiers to Perth. However, unfortunately for him, he went by chivalric tradition and he invited de Valance and his forces to come out and fight. Now, de Valance said it was too late in the day, so they should all fight tomorrow instead. Dreadfully sorry, my good chap. We're all just a tad worn out, a little snoozy just now. You know, it's not good sportsmanship to have a battle this late in the day. The children need picked up from croquet, and you know, perhaps we could pencil it in for tomorrow after brunch and, hmm? There will be avocado on sourdough, fear not. (laughs) I think with a name like de Valence, is he not French, Jenny? Oh, yeah, probably. Um, uh, There will be coq de monsieur en croissants, fear not. Thanks for amending that bit, Jenny. That's the real accuracy that we needed in that impersonation. (laughs) Yeah, it was the important bit. (laughs) However, there is deceit at play. You see, the battle never happened the next day, because de Valence didn't wait until after bruncheon. Oh, gosh, so sorry. Did we forget to send the bruncheon invites? Silly me. Well, Robert the Bruce received no bruncheon invite at all. Ha ha! He left the shadow of Perth and marched his forces six miles away, setting up camp to prepare his troops for their ranged battle the next day. Because this is how chivalry works. You want to have a fair fight. However, de Valence waited until twilight and snuck up on Robert the Bruce and his disarmed troops preparing their camp. And de Valence and his forces ambushed them with a surprise attack. Surprise! Now, Robert the Bruce's soldiers were decimated in this sly attack. And before he knew it, Robert the Bruce was on the run. When they say chivalry is dead, um, this is kind of what they mean, isn't it? You know, you act chivalrously and then you die. Not an avocado or a croissant in sight. (laughs) 
unfortunately, it's true. There's just no such thing as a fair fight. And it's certainly a theme of Scottish battles that we've come to be aware of. But let's look at the role that our treasured Shehalian plays in this story. So Jenny, you need to be a Perthshire reporter. On the north side of Shehalian is a castle in which King Robert Bruce and his queen took refuge in 1306. This was at a period of Bruce's life when his adventures and hardships and perils which he and his supporters encountered seemed closer to the incidents of a romance than the details of history. In the beginning of the year, he had slain the Red Common at Dumfries. From the disastrous Battle of Methven, he escaped, with only some 400 followers, into the wilds of Athol. He proceeded thence to Aberdeen, on learning that his queen and his brother Nigel had reached it. Closely pursued by the English, he left Aberdeen, taking his queen and his brother Nigel with him, and they sought safety in the vastness of Bredelbane. It seemed to have been then that he sheltered for a time in the old fortress on the north side of Shehalian. It might just be me, but I didn't realise that Nigel was a medieval name. Did you? No, that definitely sounds like some Outlander stuff. (laughs) He just touched a stone in the 70s and boom, he's away with his beaded curtain and everything. (laughs) Bye, Nigel. (laughs) Farewell, Uncle Nigel. However, I haven't been able to find the fortress on the north side of Shehalian that Robert the Bruce and his followers were said to have rested in. Though, it is marked on an 1807 map, which is rather gorgeous, though perhaps unreliable. I'll pop a picture of it online for anyone interested. Yeah, it is a stunning map. How could this not be reliable? Why would you put so much effort into something and then not make it accurate? Because here, yeah, you can see it is King Rob Bruce Castle right next to... Oh, right next to the giant's house. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it was the giant that did it for me. Um, (laughs) But there are other ruins marked on the map and other maps of this same place. But there's not a great deal about what these ruins were before they faced ruination. Though I know nearby there's a lot of ruins from the Highland Clearances, I've not been able to find ruins that are obviously a medieval castle. Ah, but nevertheless, whether you can find the ruins or not, Robert the Bruce sheltered on the slopes of Shehalian, a hiding place fit for a king, although I heard he was much more of a cave guy. (laughs) (laughs) But his respite did him well, and after regrouping, Robert the Bruce continued to fight for Scotland's independence successfully throughout his reign. Uh, We'll have to go into more detail about Robert the Bruce in a less mountainy episode because he's one of those historical hero figures known for his place in strengthening Scotland as an independent nation. But for now, let's go back to Shehalian. Shehalian is a mountain that commands much presence over the surrounding landscape. But it also seems to have some deep magical power too, as we're going to discover in this next tale. It's really good at card tricks. How did it know that I had the seven of clubs? Mirrors. Well-placed mirrors. (laughs) It's all smoke and mirrors, Jenny. (laughs) 
But this tale takes place on the shores of Loch Rannach, a peaceful body of water that fills Glen Rannach, and to the west of Glen Rannach, it melts into the boggy vastness of Rannach Moor. Fifty square miles of dark blanket bogs, bristling heather, scattered lochens, rocky outcrops, and very often low-lying flat grey clouds. It sounds like both an ominous and a squelchy place. (laughs) Well, yes, if the weather is against you, it can be both. And many a traveller has been lost in the thick fog, never to return. But it is also a truly beautiful expanse. It's one of the last great wildernesses of Europe and home to some very rare species, including its very own unique species of bog grass, aptly named Rannach Rush, and it's found in the cool pools and wet hollows of the undisturbed sphagnum bog. Jenny, there's genuinely nothing that I love more than a thriving bog ecosystem. And I think that's how you can tell that we've had Chihalian in our hearts for so long, because whenever a bog appears in an episode, you know it's been something that we've been brewing like peat for a very long time. <laughs> bog is the backbone of Scotland, Annie. Definitely need more bogs on shortbread tins. That'll be our first merch. Just instead of a stag on the shortbread, it's going to be a bog. <laughs> and instead of shortbread in the tin, it's just going to be bog. <laughs> and this is why no one's going to buy any of our merch ever. <laughs> Yay, more for us. <laughs> That's pretty bog standard merch, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, stretching 10 miles between the mountains of Glen Rannoch is Loch Rannoch, home to ancient crannogs and kind of old follies. The eastern shores of the loch have spectacular views of Shehalian as she towers over the end of the glen, as if guarding the rolling hills of Perthshire from the endless boggy expanse that lies on the other end of the glen. And it is here, in the shadow of Shehalian, that the second sight flourished. This handy knack of peering between the worlds was so widespread in the area that a doctor in the region treated it as a scientific study, giving it the formal name of Deuteroscopia. So this is definitely your archival rabbit hole, Jenny. Mm-hmm. I just found you one evening having very spectral visions and reading W.A.F. Brown's 1876 Journal of Psychology, Medicine and Mental Pathology. Your paws all muddy with archival intrigue, which I do wish you would wash. Well, I just want to say it's very hard to go down an archival rabbit hole and not get your paws muddy, all right? They got to, like, tile that or something. <laughs> But would you be able to do a Scottish psychological consultant's voice for me? <clears throat> the second sight is an involuntary affliction of people, of superstitious impressions, outwith one's own senses. These people have visions which involve an omen which does not inspire fear or foreknowledge in the seer. The seer generally has no personal interest in the coming event. The second sight is prevalent in the northern regions, although it is observed universally. Okay, so this is intriguing. It seems that this doctor, this person with genuine medical qualifications, is trying to diagnose the second sight. Well, let's see how this continues. The localisation in this country has been limited to the Highlands and Islands and to the Celtic race. 
even to Sky and the vexed Hebrides. Here, the burp boom of the mighty Atlantic Ocean echoes and expands itself amongst the gigantic cliffs which wall in the semi-sterile hills. Mists and raptures and long-continued twilight favour visual deceptions, and here the people have passed recently and rapidly from paganism and are by constitution gloomy, dreary and uneducated. They are prone to superstition, to create and to credit imaginary communications and warnings from the world of spirit. Ouch, coming in hot with the description of the locals. Ow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a very prejudiced view of the Highlands and Islands, and it greatly misunderstands local folklore and superstitions. I think it's perhaps feeding from the Victorian romanticisation of the Highlands, possibly an example of the really unhelpful noble savage trope. This idea that Highlanders were somehow so wild that they had not been corrupted by the modern world, which we know is absolutely ridiculous. Well, whether this man of science believes in seers or not, many people from the shores of Loch Rannoch possessed the second sight, with many being so sure of it, they stated that they'd sooner sell their granny's rocking chair than deny that there were folks who can see between both worlds. Nope, 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 nope. I do not believe that any real Highlander would ever consider messing with their granny's favourite rocking chair. (laughs) Especially because granny's never out of her rocking chair. (laughs) If you got rid of the rocking chair, you'd be getting rid of granny too. Oh no! Not granny. Anyone but granny. (laughs) But these people and their grannies all considered the second sight to be hereditary. It was passed on through the generations and thus spread through the Rannoch community. For some, it was an experience that they'd have only once in their lifetimes, and for others, it was a gift or a curse that they carried with them throughout their whole life. I think that there were mixed feelings about ideas of the second sight in the Highlands, some people taking it very seriously, and some people seeing it as light entertainment. Though sometimes those with the second sight would be revered or feared. Because more often than not, the things that they saw in the future were macabre or sinister. They had visions of death and tragedy. And, well, actually, shall we go back to our doctor to see what the most common sights were? Jenny? Those with the second sight witnessed foretelling of death or disaster. They saw visions of funeral processions and of corpses placed as if to be connected with the coffin or the cemetery. Corpses would be dressed in funeral shrouds, generally concealing the features of the doomed wearer and positioned on the body to indicate an ancient language of the expected time of the death of the deceased. See, I think this is kind of fishing here, because if someone with the second sight says that there's going to be a death, but they can't tell who it is because in their vision the corpse was wearing a funeral shroud, then really it could be anyone at all. But then it does go into more specifics. 
They would hear the sounds of a saw employed in the construction of a coffin, or the sight of a corpse pointing out the spot which the vision was to occur. Often it was the most minute accidents and details of a shipwreck, or the solemn pomp and pageantry of a funeral procession, where the features and dress of many of the tendants was revealed, or even the name and age of the deceased but they were not always recognised by the seer. So while many people in the Vanicavia were touched with the gift of the second sight, there was one woman who hadn't just been touched by it, but perhaps had done a Kaylee dance with it. Her name was Sarah, often known by locals as Old Sarah, and she lived by Loch Vanich in the late 19th century with her husband and children. She was well known in her community for her powers, and her second sight was so accurate that they garnered her acclaim throughout much of Scotland. Word of her even reached London. She was a second sight celebrity, you might say. Bet she saw that one coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I found a poem from 1905 all about the life of old Sarah. Would you like to read an abridged version of it, Jenny? I want you to put on a bit of a mystical voice. In the small churchyard near the stream, where many generations lay, Sarah beheld as in a dream, a double world each day. For of each corpse was buried there, she'd seen the phantom funeral wraith in weirdly ghostly guise appear a long time before the death. Oft times at night, in darkness thick, when others were in slumber laid, she heard the click of ghostly pick and clap of ghostly spade. Nor was it only near her door that Sarah's second sight found play, but hidden things she did explore in regions far away. In wild Lochon, that lake of dread, Within the confines of Argyle, a man was drowned, and for the dead, men laboured a long while. For they could not the body find, although they dragged all o'er the place, with grappling tools mid rain and wind, till they gave up the case. And now they sent the word by post, asking Sarah if she knew where they might find the body lost and let her point them true. And so she sketched out a little chart, which she returned on that same day, placing a dot upon the part where the lost body lay. When the chart arrived, they raised the body from the very spot, and at the skill all were amazed the prophetess had got. And oft they thought of Sarah's case, who having seen it from afar, had guided them to find the place like a directing star. Soon, Sarah of the second sight, when she was fourscore years and more, departed to the land of light, its visions to explore. But still her body resteth here, in that small churchyard in a tomb, till the archangel shall appear with trumpets on day of doom. Thank you so much, Jenny. That was a very well-read poem, very mystical. 
so powerful was old Sarah that she could locate the drowned body of this poor man from many miles away, or at least that's what the poem is telling us. And it also recounts two other folk sadly lost to drowning, who Sarah was also able to accurately locate for their family and friends. It tells us that she lived until she was over 80 years old and was buried in the local churchyard. The cases documented in this poem, plus many more, gained Sarah some notoriety. So much so that the Psychical Research Society in London's interest was piqued. The Marquess of Butte, who had a notable interest in mysticism and the occult, was the vice chairman of the Psychical Research Society at this time. This society was set up in 1882, and its aim was to conduct organised scholarly research into human experiences that challenge contemporary scientific models. We're at a really fascinating time in history, at this kind of turn of the century, where some educated people are still curious enough about the world of the spirits, where they're prepared to ask, are ghosts real or not, and seek academic and scientific evidence of this one way or another. And it's not just an academic question. Genuinely, I think because so many of them would have just been interested in the second sight as a form of their favourite entertainment. Oh, yes, Annie, what Victorian didn't love a seance? I say we bring back the seance and we scrap Netflix and we all start holding hands in dark rooms talking to the spirits of our deceased childhood pets. I don't think your toad would want to speak to you, Jenny. Why didn't you love me? (laughs) (laughs) And so the Psychical Research Society were out to investigate all faucets of the paranormal and the Marquess of Butte heard of old Sarah, the seer of Shehalyan, and he sent a commissioner north to interview her on the 25th of July, 1895. And they were so interested in Sarah because they were incredibly religious and they believed that the prophets in the Bible were also endowed with a second sight. And so if they could prove that the second sight was real, it was another check in the box for the credibility of the Bible. With a modern lens on, I find this so unusual. Because nowadays we think of anything relating to the supernatural or their cult to be the complete opposite of the Bible. But actually, in the Victorian era, we've got this really interesting intersection where people are wondering that if they can prove the existence of the spirit world, they can also prove some of the miracles that happen in the Bible. Mm. It's a very interesting perspective on the world. So what did they find out about old Sarah? She frankly told him all she knew about the subjects they inquired. Confessed her gift was old and true, what Bible men inspired. Scripture itself was very full, from beginning to the end, of second sight which was her rule, it sense to comprehend. Then the commissioner replied, if the great Marquess had been here, it would have been his special pride to tend his thanks sincere. So sounds like they were pretty happy with that. Yes, it sounds like they certainly left as believers in her ability. 
and if anything, it just reaffirmed their their faith as well for them, which I think is a really positive way of looking at this case because instead of making them feel divided in their beliefs, it's actually made them more certain in the possibility of miracles. Bringing them together. This poem comes from a book published in 1905, and by this point, the legend of Old Sarah is well known, especially in the shadow of Shehalian. And this book also mentioned that some of Old Sarah's abilities were reported in the local newspapers, so I got really excited and I put on my local newspaper hat and I went exploring. <laughs> Annie actually has a hat made out of local newspapers that she will wear while exploring local newspaper archives. <laughs> and I found this gripping article in the Dundee Courier from 1902 with a heavily sensationalised headline. The Aberfeldy Mystery! Remarkable Story! Strange Occult Power! The Lady of the Second Sight! Ooh, I wonder what this one's about. So it tells us the tale of the strange disappearance of Mrs. Helen Strathern from Aberfeldy. Helen was only 36 years old, and she was a skilled dressmaker. Her husband, George, was a sergeant instructor in the Black Watch, so he's a soldier. He served abroad frequently, spending a lot of time in South Africa. Helen and George had been married for 10 years, though they had to spend a lot of time apart, Helen in Aberfeldy and George serving in the army. However, tragedy struck their home at the end of October 1902. Helen left their house one Sunday evening and vanished. Search parties were sent, but no trace of her could be found. The worried family, friends and community alike all banded together to search for Helen Strathern, but unfortunately they had no luck. She was gone. Time ticked by. Days turned into weeks. There was no sign of missing Helen and people feared that she may slip into the murky waters of an unsolved mystery forever. That is until a seer from Aberfeldy contacted the distraught husband and told him the following. The body will be found high and dry on the banks of the River Tay. She will be found lying on the bank, near a house similar in shape but with taller chimneys, as the house in Rannach, where the lady in question called home. She will be discovered near well-kept gardens, and there will be a fallen tree near to the spot where your beloved wife lies. The location of where the body would be found was described with even more details and characteristics of the landscape. And though belief in the second sight would have been fading in many parts of Scotland, there must have been a little ember of this flame dimly burning around Shehalian. So, the seer's words were heeded, and a search party was arranged, and the body of Helen Strathern was found in the exact circumstances described by the seer. It was over six weeks since she had originally gone missing. 
many of the people who had gone on the search for her, they, they were not believers in the second sight, but they just wanted to help out a bereaved husband. However, after they found the body from such an accurate foretelling, they were all astounded and they became absolutely certain that this seer was able to peer behind the veil. But do you know my wee suspicion about this case, Jenny? She got her own reality TV afterwards called Death at First Sight? No, no. It would be Death at Second Sight, Jenny. (laughs) That's season two. (laughs) I suspect that this seer is actually Old Sarah's daughter. Because if we go on to read this extract in the article, we learn that it's a family trait that has been in this family, in this area, for a long time. The lady in question is not what could be described as an old woman. She is of middle age, bright and intelligent, and she does not put on the airs of one gifted with the prophetic power. A rather striking coincidence in connection with this remarkable faculty of second sight is that the lady is the seventh daughter, and her mother before her was also a seventh daughter. Many years ago, it was common talk in different parts of Scotland, particularly in the Highlands, that the seventh daughter was invariably gifted with occult powers denied to the other members of the family. And in this circumstance, both mother and daughter, both of whom have attracted so much attention, were seventh daughters. It is sure to be commented on by many. We should call it the seventh site, Annie. Also, who knew Kermit had a gig as a reporter in the 1800s? (laughs) (laughs) I always feel bad in episodes where I make you use up all your accents. I've only got three. (laughs) And all you've got left is a frog, Jenny. (laughs) It's my toad coming back to haunt me. (laughs) I find it extraordinary that they were both seventh daughters. Because this ties into a really ancient belief. The article goes on to say that her mother was a well-known seer, possibly old Sarah, who had helped out in many similar cases, just like the poem that we've covered, locating the bodies of unfortunate souls lost in the dark Scottish waters. We can't be certain, but I'm just I'm just glad we find the possibility that these two people could be related. That we found old Sarah's potential daughter here. Surprise parties would have been a nightmare in that household. Impossible. Impossible. Yes. <laughs> There's something magical about Chihalian that seems to seep out into the surrounding area and infuse the lives of those in its shadow. Perhaps the legends of Chihalian are just so strong that the people find themselves woven into them. However, I have to add that in this particular case, I think that the enchantment has maybe gone wrong. Because the story of the second sight, though it is a tremendous story, it overshadows the more important and true tragedy of Helen Strathern's death. I looked up Helen's death certificate, and it's a little bit strange, a little bit suspicious because a few amendments have been made. 
Um, they've crossed out found dead in the River Tay and replaced it with the word drowned, and it's quite heavily altered. Mm, so do you think there may have been some foul play? I, I'm not sure, though I feel that because we've got this story of the body being found with second sight, we've lost the complete story of Helen Strathin's death. I feel like if the second sight hadn't been there, then the article might have at least reported more details about how the tragedy occurred, what actually happened. Because I don't know what happened, and I don't know how she died, and I feel there's just something missing there. Hmm, very true. All true crime really picks up my heart. I feel a guilt for the victims when their stories are not finished, when their stories are not whole. Hmm, and so much of the second sight revolves around the dark end of the mortal coil, and for most afflicted with it, it was both a gift and a curse. Living in one world while peering into the other through an old jangly beaded curtain can't have been easy, but at least these women did help to recover the bodies of many missing, giving their families and friends some peace of mind and a chance to say a proper goodbye to their loved ones. I think that's a critical detail that whatever happened, at least the bodies were found, Mm -hmm. at least these people didn't remain missing. Mm -hmm. So let's end on some more of the light-hearted legend of Shehalion, because we know it's a magical mountain. We mentioned in the previous episode that Shehalion is usually translated as the fairy mountain of the Caledonians. So here, Jenny, we've got a clipping from the Dundee Courier in 1879. Can you jump into dramatising the local newspaper for me? Oh, I don't know, Annie. I've never done that before. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I believe in you, Jenny. I believe in you. The wonderful cave in Jehalion is the place to which the fairies lived and where they held their mystical gatherings. The mouth of the cave is in the southwest angle of the mountain. Some miles to the east, there is an opening in the face of the rock, which I believe to be the termination thereon. Several stories are told and believed by the credulous relating to the cave that the inside thereof is full of chambers or separate apartments, and that, as soon as a person advances a few yards, they come to a door, which the moment they enter closes behind them of its own accord, and prevents them from ever returning, keeping them trapped forever within Shehalion. For the truth of such stories we cannot vouch, We have not tested the door of the cave, and although if we had, we fear the door may, with the departures of the fairies, have lost its magic powers. There's a couple of things that we've learnt from the many stories of fairy hills, knolls and mountains. We know that fairies love music, so musicians need to be particularly careful around fairy hills. And we also know that fairies are always waiting for opportunities or sneakily luring unsuspecting humans into the hill to trap these poor folks inside. At least this one seems like a fairly spacious place to be trapped. 
I heard there's a room full of Outlander box sets and bean bags in there. <laughs> but I have come across this cave in a few other places too. One had a pretty accurate description of how we get there, so I think we should take a Stories of Scotland day out and try to find it. And get trapped there forever, Jenny. The listeners are already waiting two weeks for every new episode. We don't want to make them wait forever. <laughs> That's very true. That's our excuse for our rate of episode releases. Like, oh, we're trapped in the fairy knoll again. <laughs> <laughs> They've just got such good music and comfy beanbags. Ah, <laughs> uh, and time just moves differently in fairyland. In a lot of the fairy knoll stories, the entrapped person feels like they've only been away for a few hours, when actually it's been years and years. But the majority of the time, they do manage to escape. And with Shehalyan, I get the feeling from the stories that I've read that it's more of a metaphor for something else, perhaps death and the afterlife, because mountains are spiritual places. And there's something very powerful about being able to walk to a place above the clouds or walk into the heart of a mountain. Yes, that's an excellent point. And it actually connects to a more Christian version of Shehalian as a liminal place, which I first spotted in the Dundee Courier of 1926. Yay. I've been through every Dundee Courier, apparently. <laughs> So Jenny, can you enchant us with the local newspapers? This is the tale of the old woman who dreamed and brooded over Shehalian's towering height until she was sure that it was the very gate of heaven. When she felt death come near her, a knowing came to her and she rose by night and set off to climb Shehalian. She had a truth in her. There she had a certain feeling that at dawn, on the peak of Shehalian, the golden gates would open for her. Seven or eight miles she must have walked with the death weakness upon her, but the gates were there, and lo, they opened when she reached the crest. The watchers the next day found her kneeling with clasped hands, upraised as if in thanksgiving, and her dead face turned towards the top. Her poor, bewildered brain may well have seen more than the rest of us see, for who can deny the fascination of this great mountain, and the cleansing of the mind and heart that seems to follow its ascent? So this is suggesting again that Shehalian is a place of both incredible spirituality, but almost uh, a sacred place. A place that when a local woman thinks about the closest she could get to God, she thinks of the top of Shehalian in her final hours. I climbed Shehalian a couple of years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday, though. I kept hearing this beautiful little creaking noise. Like the hinges of an old door opening and closing and opening and closing. And it grew really misty, and I couldn't see where this creak was coming from. And it began to get croaky like a big toad. And that's when I saw, for the first time, the ptarmigan. These beautiful subarctic birds in the grouse family. In the summer, ptarmigans have a stunning speckled brown and grey feathery coat 
that perfectly matches the rocky environment. Then, in winter, as when I saw them, Ptarmigans put on this gorgeous coat of pure white to camouflage perfectly into the snow. They even have these pristine white feathers on their feet and on their eyelashes, dressed as showgirls in the Moulin Rouge, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Just the white feathery eyelashes. (laughs) They look fake. Chahalian Blanc. (laughs) (laughs) And there's something so perfect about this bird, the ptarmigan, who makes the noise of a creaking door or a toad and who changes feathers to match the mountain top. I was with an ecologist at the time who suggested to me that the ptarmigan were just like fairies and when I watched them play and dance with each other, jumping around, gliding and cackling, I, I became so certain that Shehalion was full of magical creatures. Well, if nothing else, the ptarmigan will know where to find the creaky door into the supernatural realms. Agreed. (laughs) For ending this episode, we have a really wonderful song from the School of Scottish Studies Archives that I'm thrilled to be sharing with you. Again, it's from our mysterious unknown man being interviewed by Dr. Betsy Ross, and it's lovely and nostalgic. And it reminds me of my grandfather when he sings. This particular song, the words were given to me many, many years ago. And it, I can't tell who gave it to me. Somebody sent me the words. And it's, of course, speaking about Shehalion, of that famous hill that overlooks the whole valley here. And I was so taken with it, I searched some of the old Highland ears until I got one particular tune which I thought uh, was suitable for the words, and I set it to this music. And what was the name of the tune? Uh, I can't just remember the name of the tune, but it's a, a, a famous tune which you may have heard yourself. You know, it's, it is a Gaelic air. A Gaelic air. Uh-huh. Can you sing it for me? Sound me the name on the pipes wildly screaming splendor of tartan and flashing of steel grey skies above and the pipes wildly screaming she hallion forever to hearts that are leal Raging from Ranach, the blast fiercely stinging. I see the air from Glen Lyon in the snow. Yet in my ear, old Chihalion is singing songs of a summer. I spent long ago. Ah, how the name of Shehalion can brighten longings and hopes that have dimmed with the years. Dark be the day, but its burden lighten when that old hill 
comes again, the mightiest. Speak the dear name when my vision is dimming, when all life's turmoil dies down in my ears. When o'er my soul the dark waters are stealing, and heaven's high hills to me shall appear. Then I'll remember she on in her glory, purple and rosy, a dying of the day. Write in a word, I might still heart the story, she hail yon, she hail yon, she hail yon always. Shahalian is a mountain of many stories, from scientific discoveries and weighing the world to dark caverns of fairy Kayleys dancing to a piper's song. Possibly Ptarmigan's dancing to a piper's song. <laughs> but it is a brilliant place and it's been an absolute joy to research. If you enjoy this podcast, which seeing as you got this far, I think you do, then please consider becoming a patron of our show. For the price of a pack of butteries a month, you can help support Annie and I as we really try to make this the best show possible for you, and all the other Scotland lovers out there. We have some really amazing episodes in the pipeline. Halloween is coming up, so there's some spooky ones and some witchy ones, and lots more as well. We are independent creators, and we make this podcast in our spare time and would love nothing more than to make even more episodes and content for you all. By signing up to our Patreon, you can help us to get to a place where we are able to put more time towards Stories of Scotland and therefore get more episodes out there for your ears. So it's a win-win. For this episode, we'd like to welcome our new Patreons. And I like to imagine all of these Patreons inside Shehalian having a big Kaylee with the ptarmigans and the fairies and listening to the sound of this lost Piper's music. So welcome Jennifer, Sharon, Lydia and Renee. Thank you all so much. Genuinely, your support means the world for us. But don't worry if you're unable to support us on Patreon because there are other ways you can help us out and this podcast is always going to be free and available to you. You can also support us by leaving us a wee review which really boost our ratings in the charts and allow more people to find us and also they just make us really happy. Someone recently said in a review that listening to Stories of Scotland is like giving a gift of joy to yourself and that just melted my heart, so thank you. It makes it all worthwhile when we get to read your lovely and kind words and it really helps to motivate us to keep making this podcast bigger and better. We are truly powered by the people. You can also follow us and share us on all social medias as well as telling your friends and your family and your co-workers and strangers on the street about how much you love us. 
We love watching this podcast grow and it's so great to have you all along on this wild ride with us. So until next episode, Slanjiva. Slanjiva. you were to go into a fairy world and instead of it being like all beautiful and gold plated it's just a bunch of horrible tapestries and beaded curtains and broken lava lamps <laughs> so i find a poem from 1905 all about old sarah Two seconds, you just said you um, just said 1905 instead of 05 which i think it's hilarious <laughs> but incorrect <laughs> so i find a poem from 1905 all about can you be normal, Jenny, but with a hint of mystique? Right. I thought I already had a hint of mystique around me, but that might just be the fact I'm queer. It's <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> <was> really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Can we keep that in? <laughs> Sarah beheld as in a dream. A double world each day. <laughs> Just kidding. No, that's excellent mystique levels right there, Jenny. I really like it. I really like it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jenny. That was a very well-read poem. Very mystical. Thank you. Thank you. I turned up the queer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you. Surprise birthday parties would have been impossible in that household. No chance of getting away with it. Especially if the party involved a dead body being found near water. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs>